Welcome to Queen Rise Radio. This is your host, Jackie Hyman, and this is your hub of women who live to improve the lives of other women, health, wellness, and being their best. Hi, Queen Sisters. Welcome back to Queen Rise Radio. This week's guest is super special. I met her of all places, are you going to believe this, on Snapchat, back when Snapchat was this cool interface uh, for young people. I think it still is for some. Either way, (laughs) it's all about the TikTok now. You know what I'm saying? Basically, um, somehow I got connected to Rabbi Sandra on Snapchat, and she was one of the only people on Snapchat putting out content that really touched my soul. And because I was in a place where I was struggling with my religion, um, it was very special to me, and I instantly felt this connection towards Rabbi Sandra. This was a couple of years ago, mind you, and I finally, finally got to speak with her face-to-face and record the whole conversation. Sandra is a woman who is a rabbi, and she is a woman of color, and she is a woman who is in a same-sex marriage, strong activist and member of the LGBTQ community, and... She does an amazing job of spreading the messages of love, unity, and peace that the Torah has to offer us, and she does an amazing job of making Jews of color and Jews who are members of the LGBTQ plus community feel like they have a place within Judaism. And for me, just being a woman sort of makes me feel like, where is my place in all of this Judaism stuff? So I can't even imagine for someone whose gender is non-binary um, or anything like that, like what how they would feel. So that's why I think it's so important that rabbis like Rabbi Sandra exist. And in our conversation, you will get to learn about Rabbi Sandra's personal journey towards Judaism and towards becoming a rabbi. More about why it's so important to have rabbis who look like Sandra, what to stop asking Jews of color, and within the current political climate, you know, I've just heard more and more women, Jewish women saying, we want to hear from Jewish women of color. What is your message for us? How can we be allies? How can we help? What can we do right now? We just want to listen to you. Uh, So Sandra's message to us to us Jewish women of color and especially who are white. And it's really just Rabbi Sandra is so, she's so kind and her soul shines through whenever she speaks. So I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. Rabbi Sandra, welcome to Queen Rise Radio. Hi, Jackie. Thank you. Thank you. It's such, I said it already, I'm going to say it again. It is such an honor to have you here. Um, And I just want to thank you for coming on. It really, really means a lot to me. And I think it's going to mean a lot to a lot of the listeners as well. So just thank you. Thank you. I would love to start off by getting to know you a little bit better because, you know, I see what I see on social media and that doesn't, I'm sure that's not the whole picture. And I'd love to give people a little bit more of the picture. So just tell me a little bit about, you know, your Jewish roots. I did read a little bit on your website, but I'd love for the listeners to hear as well. And um, yeah, let's start there. Yeah. Um, so, um, I'm not sure how, where, where to start, but I start, I grew up in a non-religious household. Um, and I mean, both of my parents identify as Christian, but that wasn't really part of my upbringing. I mean, I knew what church was and the only religion I really understood was a Christian one and it didn't, it didn't really work for me. And, um, 
in my my early 30s, late my late 20s, early 30s, after I got out of the military, I started a personal training business. And for some reason, I had all these Jewish clients, which is not the reason why I converted, but it was sort of like I had these Jewish clients. And one of those clients actually is a really good friend of mine. And we have a phone date tomorrow, and I'm really excited about it. Uh, his name is Joshua Lesser, and he's a rabbi in Atlanta. And um, as we became friends, he introduced me to his community and uh, to Judaism. And I, uh, as I, his, I think he might tell it slightly differently, but as I remember it, like I just sort of fell in love with the community. And uh, I think he says something like that, that my questions started to get a little more deeper. And so like he started to invite me to his, uh, his synagogue. But I love, I love the community and um, I love the communal aspect of it. I loved a lot of the activists that I knew, a lot of the people that I already knew in the community that I would see out doing protesting or out at things that people were protesting um, were members of this community. I didn't know them very well, but it was, it sort of felt, it felt very familiar. And um, so I just kept going. And then it's so weird because it was in many ways, it was so long ago, but it also feels like yesterday. So it's sort of like memories are sort of, you know, melting. Um, but I, I knew that I wanted to uh, be a member of the community. And a lot of my friends already started, a lot of my non-Jewish friends already started, thought that I was Jewish because of the way that I was talking, which I didn't really understand. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, you know, and then like, I don't know, 2004, I think, um, I converted it. And my friend Josh likes to remind, well, I don't really remember this part, but he, you know, he sort of says that like, he uh, it's like, wanted me to understand that I, I wasn't converting to Congregation Beit Havarim. I was converting to this much, much larger, larger thing, which I totally got. I totally get it. But I, and I also understood, like, to be a member of that community meant converting to Judaism. And then, you know, it was a journey. Like, I started the process and understand, understanding that I could totally get out at any time. Um, and it was totally, completely driven by me. I was also very lucky because my rabbi was also my workout partner. So um, at six o'clock in the morning, you know, I would sometimes say things like, and I would still say this for, for a long time, I need your rabbi hat on. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, you can go back to being just Josh. So, <laughs> so that's it. And then uh, um, I know you didn't ask this, but people, how do you make the leap from that to becoming a rabbi? Um, yeah, yeah, that was my next question. That's usually, that's usually the next question. Um, I, you know, I was, I, if, you, if you ever get a chance to check out Congregation Beit Havarim, um, it's this, for me, it was this amazing place with a lot of rich music and a lot of diversity in a variety of ways. Um, and people were, felt like they could bring all of their diversity. So for me, you know, like music in that community did not feel like a lot of the Jewish community music that I had heard outside of in other spaces that don't really work for my ear. Um, they were writing a lot of liturgy. They were being very creative um, in their approach to music and they were building a really strong music program. Plus the um, just incredible diversity of the community from Jews of color to enter married interfaith, uh, queer Jews all along the LGBTQ um, spectrum. And I was really happy as a Jew in the pew. I would like come and sing songs, even when I didn't even know what they meant. Um, you know, like the first song I knew was like, I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> Started, you know, it's, it's really messed up when you got a song in your ear, you don't know what, the, what it is, <laughs> how to say it. <laughs> and then you have to wait a whole week to hear it again. <laughs> right. Oh, my gosh. Um, and so, uh, but, uh, so during the, sometime around this time, laws started to change around um, same-sex marriage. And this is before mar gay marriage was a thing. Um, the Supreme Court had just made it uh, legal for same-sex people to have sex. And um, Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then for some reason, uh, ultra-conservatives were worried that gay people would want marriage next. And as an activist at the time, I don't think at least it, it wasn't even something that I was thinking about. We were just sort of celebrating that we weren't going to go to jail. Um, and so then all of a sudden I found myself thrown into this little world of trying to protect my rights. And it was already illegal in the state um, for gay couples to get married, but they felt the need to create a constitutional amendment. And we've gone so far, so fast, um, uh, and that didn't work for them. Sometimes I actually think that conservatives wanted us to get married because they sort of <laughs> galvanized this movement um, towards uh, same-sex marriage. Um, so I found myself working with a lot of activists 
in organizing around the state to change, to, to, to keep the state from creating this constitutional amendment. And at first I was sort of doing it in a political realm and I found that very toxic. I didn't, I didn't like it. Um, it was, it didn't, it didn't work for me. Like it just, like there was so much uh, hostility in different communities. And these were all people who were supposedly on the same page. Um, uh, the past pain, trauma, all that stuff from, you know, like white people, black people, queer people and everything in between and intersecting. And, and then somehow I found myself with a bunch of clergy. Um, Atlanta has a, a lot of progressive clergy. Most of them are black. And my rabbi was often the only white person <laughs> in the room. Um, and, and at some point, I, because I was Jewish, somebody said, wait, we need more Jews. Why don't you come? And so I started getting invited to these clergy conversations around. Even though you weren't a rabbi at this point. Right, right. They, were, they just wanted more, they were trying to have more representation. And at that time, that meant uh, Jews and Christians. I don't, even, I don't even think anybody was thinking about Muslims or anything, which is so interesting now because when I do interfaith work here in Atlanta, I mean, in, in where I live, I'm really good friends with two imams. And, um, you know, we do a lot of work together. But yeah, so... Um, cool. And then I was having the same conversation with clergy that I was having in the political realm, but it felt better. Like it kind of felt like clergy. So like a lot of the clergy, like one clergy in particular that I worked with, um, I'm sure he thought I was going to hell. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm sure he did. I'm Jewish. I'm, you know, uh, yeah. and, but <laughs> the point was that like the state had no business in my bedroom. We agreed on that. And so I kind of felt like in that moment that clergy were sort of pre-wired to find common ground, um, to find some way to work together and build off of that. And so I um, started doing a lot, of, a lot more of that work. And then it also sort of became clear to me that, um, the, because I didn't have any titles, <laughs> that if I wanted to really create change with clergy in the Jewish community, I needed either, either, either to have the title rabbi or the letters PhD behind my, my name. Hmm. And um, I was supposed to be getting a PhD in sociology. That was the plan. And when I talked to young people, um, I, that was the plan that I had forever. That was what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to go, you know, I was supposed to go to undergrad and then I joined the military and then uh, go to graduate school and, and get a, get a PhD. Um, and uh, that, and so when I started thinking about going to Ruth medical school, that was really hard. Like that's giving up <laughs> a lot. I, I know what this path looks like. I don't know anything about this other path. And so um, after a while I couldn't ignore it anymore. And so I enrolled in the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. The Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. I'm I'm so happy that you're a rabbi. Thank you. Because first of all, I just need to I feel the need to sort of give a little bit from where I'm coming from. I'm living in a like you keep talking about diversity. I think we think that we have diversity in my town, but we don't. Okay. We don't. Like it's it is Orthodox and mainly white and um, a lot of Anglo and we're in the West Bank mm -hmm. so it's by nature conservative and culture so I stand out in that way that I'm, I'm not so much mm -hmm. um, and you know there was one really wonderful gay man here. We welcomed him. We did a big kiddish for him when he moved here. Right. Um, and then he moved to Tel Aviv because like, why would he stay here <laughs> when there's Tel Aviv right there, right? Um, so, and, and um, but when I see you come up in my feed, I show my phone to my husband and I see. <laughs> This is my rabbi. This is my rabbi. <laughs> I don't care. This is my rabbi. <laughs> because, well, whatever. I don't want to get, go into my story about why. Okay, but um, I think it's, it's just so healthy to see uh, someone like you with, with the title rabbi. I think it, it's inspiring and it's empowering to 
me and other women and I'm sure other blacks and I'm sure other members of the LGBTQ community. And um, I think it's, I don't want to say something wrong, but is brave like an okay word to use? Like, I think it's, I don't know. I think it just inspires me. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Thank you. It really means a lot to me. So I'm glad you're a rabbi. I'd love to hear a little bit more about Reconstructionist Judaism. Um, I heard of it when I was growing up, uh-huh. but it was always like... That's good. A lot of- yeah, yeah. I know, right? In Denver, Colorado, there was like a very small community, and it was... But for Orthodox Jews, um, it was always kind of with this air of like, oh, that's not going to last, you know? <laughs> like, that's, it's not, come on, like, it's not real. It's not going to last if it's not based in halacha, if it's not, you know, um, and it's not what people call Torah Judaism, mm-hmm. as if Reconstructionist movement has nothing to do with Torah, right? Like, so it was very... Um, there's very much of an air of, and I don't want to say anything bad about the Orthodox community, but at the same time, I feel like in a lot of them, there's this air of superiority. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's all, I, like, that's all I know of it. There was this one community, it was like, oh, all the like, kind of outsiders go there, and, <laughs> and it's not going to last. Like, that's what I knew of it. Mm-hmm. So please tell me the real story. Yeah, what's interesting, I just want to say that like, we are small, but we're mighty because the, I feel like the changes that the Reconstructionist movement have made to the larger Jewish world are, are, are many um, for such a small movement. Um, and my first or second year in studying, we had to vid- be videotaped doing like a two minute elevator stump speech on Reconstructionist, Reconstructing, we've changed the name, Reconstructing Judaism, because people would ask this question all the time. So I don't know if I could do two minutes, but, um, what I will say is um, that, like, so of the four major movements, you know, uh, reform, orthodoxy, and conservative, um, we're the only ones that were born and bred out of the United States. And our founder was Mordecai Kaplan, who was a teacher at JTS, the flagship school for the conservative movement. And um, the, the major main, main differences for Kaplan, and Kaplan actually, from when I, as it's told to me, he didn't really want to start an additional school. It was more of his students that wound up starting another movement. Um, and the, the concept of chosenness and um, um, supernatural being and, and um, egalitarianism were sort of like the, the especially like the, the concept of chosenness. So I'll frame it like, you know, the beginning, you know, people have to understand where Jews were in the beginning of the 20th century. Many Jews who immigrated to this country um, had sort of like got rid of all of their, all of their exteriornesses of being Jewish. Uh, no talitot, no, no prayer shawls, no kippot, no, you know, some of their rabbis were called doctors or reverends. They, some, some, some of these synagogues had churches on Sundays. And, it, it, you know, the sort of shift to assimilate um, and, um, and also sort of threw out a lot of the rules. And that's sort of like the, the sort of what a lot of uh, reform uh, congregations were doing. As far as Mordecai Kaplan was concerned, that was a move to, those were moves too far. And he started to think about that you could be... Um, in my head, I have the president of Reconstructionist Movement, who's like a student of Kaplan in my brain. And I'm just wondering, am I saying this right? So Rabbi Deborah Waxman, if you're listening, if I'm messing up, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm sending this to her. <laughs> um, but, you know, he, he was sort of like, you can live in two civilizations. You can be Jewish and you can be an American citizen. You can be religious and you can be intellectual at the same time, which today is not radical thinking but it, it was then he also didn't believe in it he believed in god he had a, you know a lot of people that i've heard people think that mordecai kaplan didn't believe in uh, a divine being or god however you want to phrase it but his writings are more along the lines of that there is not a being <laughs> that is controlling 
the world or that that is controlling things. And and um, there's a really famous quote that I cannot think of right now uh, that that sort of sums up his perspective on God. Um, and he was also concerned that 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 all of the language around chosenness, especially with Jews trying to assimilate, made us sound elitist. And so in the first iteration of the prayer book... I've been struggling with that lately, I got to say, especially in the last few weeks. Oh, you want to say more about it? or? Um, it bothers me that we think that there is a lot of the wording that used to be so precious to me and make me feel so special and proud to be Jewish. And... For example, in Havdalah, mm-hmm. right? Like, you chose us, mm-hmm. and it's and and um, and you separated us mm-hmm. and made us holy, yeah. like separated us from all the other nations. That kind of wording, mm-hmm. and made us holy and chose us. Kind of feels to me like, hi, we're your favorite. Yeah, yeah, and that's not okay with me lately because, first of all. Spiritually, um, until very recently, I was looking outside of Judaism for spiritual connection. I, I was finding it much stronger mm-hmm. from Tony Robbins mm-hmm. or like, you know, I don't know, just other spiritual places that grabbed my heart where the Torah classes I was going to just weren't anymore. And so I was just sort of thinking like, how can it be that you know, we have this, like, relationship with God that's, like, yeah, it's, yeah, it seems like we're saying it's above the other, mm-hmm. the other nation's relationship with God. And especially in the last few weeks, um, you know, just a lot of people have been, it's been bringing up a lot of stuff for a lot of people and just this air of superiority we see as a problem. It's a problem. Mm-hmm. But those are the words in the sitter, like, you know, like, yeah. am I supposed to negate that? Like, do you know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. So I'm supposed to be proud to be a Jew. I'm supposed to feel like I'm special. And how do I do that without feeling like I'm more special? Do you, like, you know? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I think the, conserva- I mean, the conservative movement and the reform movement have... They've kept the language of chosenness, but they have moved in their in their in their philosophy around it, or the yeah yeah philosophy around it, um, and they have um, their own like perspectives of it, so it doesn't sound elitist. Um, and but for Mordecai Kaplan, you know he that that thing that's what actually wound up breaking, causing him to break away because he couldn't reconcile that, and so. When his students created the Reconstructionist movement, um, they've created it with this foundation of, you know, uh, no supernatural God, which doesn't mean you don't believe in God. It just means you don't believe in like a thing that has power or whatever, um, or controls things. Like I always think, like little puppet, <laughs> um, chosenness, um, and egalitarianism, and then shortly after, patrilineal descent. Um, and I don't know if we came up with patrilineal sin or the reform movement did first, but it doesn't really matter because we both wrote responses on it. But those, those, those are the foundations of the movement. Has the movement what, what was that last one? Patrilineal I didn't catch descent. that. What is that, please? So that, the, that you're Jewish um, by your mother or your father. Oh, or your father. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot of response on why both movements made those changes. And a lot of it having to do, you know, with you know, we know who parents are now. Um, and also going back in time to tracking Judaism with paternal descent. Um, and I think at the beginning, the Reconstructionist movement had uh, policies around, um, you could have a Jewish mother or a Jewish father, as long as you raised, if you had a Jewish father, as long as you raised a child Jewish. And I don't know if that was like, if that was a consensus of the entire movement, although that was just customs in certain communities. But now I think that, you know, if you are, if you have a Jewish mother or a Jewish father, you're Jewish. Cool. 
Cool. Well, thank you for that clarity. Yeah. And it's, but I'm, uh, it makes it really hard though for many. Uh, I have a lot of friends who are, uh, who while they were in rabbinical school, who had patrilineal scent, who made the decision to convert so they wouldn't be a, an issue or problem. And I have other friends, uh, colleagues, classmates that was, that they didn't make that choice. And it was challenging for them watching their friends do that. Wow. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. It was challenging for them to watch their friends convert. Right. Is that what you're saying? Right. So it wasn't like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I was sort of watching this play out. I had my own challenges. Right. <laughs> I'm sure. And, you know, if you commit, I mean, I don't know, like, I remember one year, maybe it was my class, whatever, but a, a more, majority of them seemed to have patrilineal descent. And like one, of, one by one, uh, quietly or loudly, many of them chose to convert. It could be because they were working conservative synagogues. It could be they didn't want it to be an issue down the road. And, and um, so you start out with this group of people that you have like, you're like, yeah, patrilineal descent. And then you realize like, wait, you're, you're going the other route. So I can imagine mm -hmm. be challenging, but I don't actually, I can't yeah. speak to the challenges myself because they weren't mine. Okay. That's, that's, yeah. It's a different <laughs> perspective for me. Yeah. Good to hear about it. So what I love about what you're putting out, I just want to say, because I'm all I know of, Reconstructionist Judaism is, you know, what I told you and then what I see from you. It's just, there's like tmimut mm -hmm. about it. And for those of you, you know, I'm sure you know, are familiar with like tmimut, it's like you can translate it to be like naive or, mm -hmm. or um, whatever. Like it can have an, a negative translation, but what it actually means is like pure. Mm -hmm. And innocent and, and, and pure. Like what you see when you look in a child's face, you know, like that, that beauty, that pureness. Like there are so many verses that you say and songs that you sing that like just from my Torah background and learning, like, you know, we could go so much deeper on all the meanings of this source and that source and, and really like, and Kabbalah and, this, and like, really go deep on it, which is beautiful. But at the same time, when I see you, it's like just saying the sh word Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, it, like, it brings me back home. Oh, that's great. It's like, yeah. it's just simple. It's sometimes just, especially for Jews like me who are very much struggling with orthodoxy, um, It's exactly what I needed to hear. It's exactly what I needed to hear. Just the simplest, most tamim, like the pashut and the pshat and the, just the words, just the verses. You know? and, and a lot of that, So much beauty just there. You know, the, the platforms that I put stuff on, but also I do believe that Judaism should be accessible. And as I reminded my team today, as we were working around, like how to be more welcoming to, to a diverse group of Jews, um, I reminded them a lot of the things that we're talking about are rooted in trauma. So I, I adopted this tradition with none of the trauma. I got all the love, all the beauty, all the greatness, but none of the trauma, you know, which, you know, allows, I think allows me to um, do the things that I do because I'm not thinking about what somebody else said or what somebody else did. And, and I know what Jewish law says. And I know, <laughs> like somebody asked me like, why can't you do that? I said, because I'm a rabbi. I know I can like, <laughs> like what? I don't even remember. It was some online conversation. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> young boy. I don't know. Um, and, but I get those a lot. Like, that's the thing. Like I get it a lot. Um, questions like that on social media. And, um, you know, and I think in my real life, when I, like, I think when people challenge me, they're a little more creative in their, in their challenges sometimes. And, um, and, you know, like I had, like, here's example, one example, you know, like I've had lots of conversations about what, what our, our Jewish law says about same-sex relationships. I mean, of course I have, because that's, that's me. And I, you know, like most people, mm -hmm. we spend a lot of time talk, learning about the things that affect us. And so when people ask me about, you know, what the Torah says, you know, I break it down very simply, um, like specifically the Leviticus text. You know, I said, first of all, text says nothing about women. <laughs> um, second, right. it's true. Um, and so the proof text for women is uh, Parshati more, but that's that that requires doing a lot of digging. And, and, and but there's no proof text. There's no proof text. There's no like 
text in the Torah that talks about, about women. The second thing, and for some people that I've run into, because it doesn't say that, they think that you that means you can't do it. But I said, you know, like, women, if women's voices are absent and all you do is assume that women can't do something because you don't see a, um, women represented, where other people are like, well, there is no, there's, there's nothing that says that women can't. So we're not, we're going to make women not obligated. There's a, dif- there's a difference in that. And this is why we need women rabbis. <laughs> this is why. So for young people that I work with, I really do break it down simply. So, like, so the text says nothing about women. Secondly, um, it is physically impossible for a man to lay with a man the same way we lie with a woman. That's the second thing. Right. Um, and if you believe that that text is talking about um, anal sex and, and men, there are men who are making choices who are Jewish to not have relationships that way. And the te- those texts say nothing about loving, committed relationships. And then to watch the wheels turn. <laughs> and yes, I could go deeper. I could, you know, break down the, you know, the, uh, what abomination means in Hebrew. Like I could do all of that, but it just, uh, <laughs> okay, we're going to have to come have you back because I want to hear all of it. <laughs> not because I, not because like I, I have any doubt that you know, yeah, yeah. But, whatever. It, I'm just, it's very interesting to me. But no, but like studying that in Haruta would be awesome. But you know, yeah, it's not where people are. And people prefer hearing, like, I remember this guy when I was like, first, you know, when I said the, sec- the text says nothing about women. And then when I said the, the, the part about um, it's impossible, he's like, no, you do have a point. <laughs> do have a point, Rabbi. You do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like, well, if the text doesn't actually say that anything about it, then why does it feel so against the Torah for some people? Why does it feel so wrong for some, and you have to get curious and wonder like, well, where is that actually coming from? Mm -hmm. To me, it seems like it comes from the same place. The same place where all of the customs that have nothing to do with law but exclude women, mm-hmm. same place, same place. It has nothing to do with the actual law. It's just yeah. what's been done. I mean, for centuries or whatever, we've, you know, we've, you know, depending on how you believe we came up with these texts, let me just put it that way, first of all, you know, right. it was, you know, written, those texts were written by men. And for a long time, um, all of our texts were only seen through the eyes of men. Feminist movement came along and when more women, I mean, women have always studied it, but more women started looking at our texts and becoming Jewish scholars or, you know, scholars with Talmud or becoming rabbis. And um, they start lifting up the stories that, that many feminists pay more attention to and started to help have the larger conversation in the Jewish community around what women's roles are and what they should be in egalitarianism, whatever. And now we're seeing um, sort of the you know, queer Jews, LGBTQIA Jews, um, doing something similar and benefiting from what the feminist movement did in the 60s and 70s and early 80s. Also taking those same texts and lifting up the sort of queer stories or the strange stories that nobody else is paying attention to. And I think we're also going to see that as we start to see more racial diversity within the rabbinate. Do you watch Queer Eye? I, I have seen a few episodes. <laughs> but I'm obsessed with this show. Oh, yeah. Um, the, so interesting because leading up to this interview, the last episode I watched last night, they were helping a gay clergyman with his church. You, I, I highly recommend whatever. Like, I think it's awesome. <laughs> I don't know what you're going to think, but... Um, but it was exactly what you're talking about, and it really got my wheels turning about, yeah, I don't know. It was kind of divine that that came up for me on Netflix like a night before this interview, and it really opened my eyes to, I guess, what it means to be in clergy and be LGBT and 
they did lift up some some things from the New Testament that sort of highlighted stories about, you know, same-sex couples and like, um, and it's just so interesting. Like, I'd love to, I'd love to delve into that. I really yeah. would. Oh, no, no. I think it's so important. I know. I mean, I think you know because of the feminist movement and the you know queering the queer rabbis who've come along, queer t- um, scholars. We pay. We look at like the stories of Jonathan and David a little, a little different. We like we look at the story of Ruth and Naomi a little differently. Um, mm-hmm. Vashti and Esther. Like we look at those things differently, yeah. um, or strangely, or you know. But um, you know, and it makes you wonder. Like you know, there's there's when you're looking at stuff through a different lens, then you're just gonna you might see things different or read it differently or interpret it differently. Yes, and we highlight what we want to highlight. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so um the world is changing so let's see where it goes wow amazing um so you you went a little bit into like the questions that you get I'm sure you get a lot um because you are just this beautiful intersection mm-hmm. so colorful so wonderful um but I'm sure that it makes people really curious and I I want to know like what are you sick of getting asked well, I mean, I think, um, I mean, I, and what I say, my answer to this is very similar to other Jews of color. Stop asking if I've converted or when I've converted upon meeting me. <laughs> like, I think, you know, if people were curious about my story, they would really let a relationship play out. They would de- develop a relationship with me and let it play out. But being asked um, right when you meet me, maybe even before you've told me your name, as if you feel entitled to know my personal story, um, it's not, I don't, that's not about curiosity. There's something else going on there. I'm not a white person, so I don't know, but I, I often wonder if this is rooted in trauma, rooted in fear, and you need to feel safe. Not you, but like the person needs to feel safe. Right. Yeah. What do you wish that they would ask instead? I don't, I don't know. I think that like, so I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of writing this op-ed, another op-ed piece for the forward, and I don't know if I'll finish it, but um, it's this question of why do you feel entitled to know my story or why do you feel entitled? And so the, the, the piece that I wrote, I, I tell a story. So I was at, I was at APAC, which is the Israeli lobbying organization, the big, 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 big conference, largest conference I've ever been to and pushed all of my introverted buttons. And I was like, Oh my God. But hello, introvert over here. Too. <laughs> um, and I went to this rabbi cocktail luncheon. So everybody in the room was a rabbi. Everybody in the room was a rabbi. Like there was so much security. There was, unless you were the help, but you know, I had a little badge on. And uh, I see this rabbi who I have a lot of respect for. Um, his teachings helped me and a lot of other, I'm not going to say what he, what those teachings were because people know who he is, but um, his teachings um, helped a lot of rabbinical students, uh, you know, get through, um, get get through training and stuff and so i saw him and i went up to him and i said excuse me are you so and so and he's like yeah and i said that's so awesome i'm so glad i got to meet you my name is rabbi whatever and uh, my name is rabbi sandra <laughs> and um and i just want to thank you so much because you've helped me and you helped a lot of other students and it, then he introduced me to his wife and then after that i turned around and he said when did you convert and he had food in his mouth so he's like when did you convert and he's like oh wait i'm not supposed to ask that question and I was like, why are you asking that question? And then we had this weird conversation about why he felt like I should answer the question. But luckily in this moment, there was an ally there. So another rabbi and said, are you listening to yourself? She just told you, <laughs> you know that the question's inappropriate. And she just said to you that she doesn't feel comfortable answering it, but you insist on telling her that you need to know. Um, and I have, you know, the only thing that makes this unusual is that I was, everyone in the room was a rabbi. So it wasn't like you didn't know that I was Jewish with all the habits. And I also have a, the same title as you. Um, and I wish it, I could say that was the first time that a rabbi had said something inappropriate to me, but it was not. But in this case, um, it's the, it's the most recent one. So, you know, I think like people, you want to, like people want to get to know each other. I can understand that. And um, however that plays out, you know, it's fine. But the, the, the need to ask Jews of color um, 
to gain to gain entry into something because when people ask me these questions i can't move like there's nowhere for me to go usually i'm completely like blocked um uh, like i worked when i worked for the anti-defamation league for a while and uh, i was at a donor event and um i was cornered by two large men tall men who insisted that they need to know my story and one guy said because i have a daughter she's asian whatever and uh i want her to know there are other jews of color i said you know there's other jews of color i just told you like we're like 15 percent of the population why are we still sitting here <laughs> but he i couldn't eat my dinner like i could because he just couldn't figure out why i wouldn't answer the question or answer whatever questions he was asking me at the time wow and these are this is unusual this is totally normal for jews of color to get asked that and so that means that jews of color um put on a lot of armor and do a lot of research often before they walk into jewish spaces so it's kind of like i'm just trying to get a deeper understanding mm -hmm. here i think that's important for me um and for listeners um because like i will admit when i started following you and i guess you know, it was like a little while after I started following you, but I wanted to ask you so badly. <laughs> um, and I like, if that's offensive in any way, like I, I totally apologize. And like, you can just tell me like, I, you know, whatever. <laughs> but I was just genuinely so curious. Um, and I, I guess that it does mean that I'm, not in proximity to enough black Jews. Like the fact that it's so intriguing for me does say something about my culture. And, um, and I guess that's something that I definitely want to work on um, and have been working on, but I admittedly just in the couple last weeks. <laughs> say something too that, yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot more than that because I have been in spaces where I was not the only Jew of color. Like there are communities that have Jews of color. It says a lot about how we as Jews see ourselves, um, the assumptions that we make about what we look like. Um, right. And, you know, it's such a small thing, but it's a major thing. I cannot tell you how many times I've been in progressive Jewish spaces where all the art on the wall as a bearded white man with tefillin, uh, a prayer shawl, you know, prayer book or whatever, but nobody in the community looks like that. Like nobody. <laughs> um, wow. And, um, or you see, you don't see, you don't see images of the people that actually look like the people in the community you may not even see images of people of color or queer people. And so we continue to tell ourselves that Jews look white or Jews look Ashkenazic white um, and uh, the Jews of color that we have in our head, um, you know, are Ethiopian, which is, I've heard that said to me multiple times. You don't look Ethiopian. I'm like, okay. Um, and Especially in Israel, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, like, I don't, like, I was, you know, well, I tell people, you know, who have been in Israel, I say, you know, Israel is a multi-racial cultural uh, country, you know, with Jews of color, with black and brown people, but I don't track, like, I don't look like the, you know, I didn't look like the other women of color in, in Israel. I don't dress the same way. Um, but yeah, and I, and I think when we, we stop using images that make people think that all rabbis are male or all Jews look a particular way or all religious Jews look in a, a way. And then this is, you know, and I'm not trying to get, communities to change their customs. I'm talking about communities that already made the change, but their art has not, or the images that they portray have not made the change. Wow, so interesting. Well, thank you, thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. um, I'm glad that, I'm glad to know more about, you know, how that feels for you, and I think it's really important for other people to hear. So we'll wrap up with one last question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you have another message for, like I know a lot of women right now um, just want to, you know, we want to hear from other females who are Jewish, of color, and just, I just, like, what is your message for 
white Jewish women right now. We're listening. So that is, is I've had, <laughs> I'm sorry. Like for once we're listening right now, but the, the, the fact that white people really want to hear from, like seriously want to hear from people of color, our Jews of color is just, you know, it's great. And I, you know, take advantage of that moment. But I think like, so do you know the author James McBride? He wrote an amazing book that was on like the New York Times bestseller list for like ever. Um, I think it's called The Color of Water. This morning I accidentally said walking on water. Oh, I've heard of that. I've yeah. heard of that. It's a, it's a really good memoir. I, I, one of my favorites. And he said that like you can't, like racism is a sickness. Like it, it's, you know, we're sick. And I'm screwing this up, but like, people are just now realizing that they have this sickness and you can't cure it if you don't know you have it or you don't have know what the symptoms are or whatever, something like that. And that's where we are. And I, you know, I invite white people or white women that as you learn about more about this, that it is going to be uncomfortable because people are we're asking you to rethink, reimagine or unlearn all of the messages you've been taught your entire life. And those messages also mean that racism or racist is this, the worst possible thing that you could be called. Right. And because of, because we have ideas of what that means, we don't necessarily understand that we are, that racism has evolved and whiteness has evolved. Um, and racism that I experience is very different than my parents the racism my parents experienced is definitely different than my grandparents and so forth and so on. And to be uncomfortable as you learn this, that's okay. That's part of the process. And then if you stay uncomfortable, it'll get better. But if you refuse to be uncomfortable, then you're just going to be angry and leave <laughs> and blame black people or brown people, or whatever. And so in this moment of discovery, for some people, I know other white people, some, many white people have been further along on this, that learn what it means to be an ally. That means to listen, uh, really open your heart up and have empathy. You know, uh, I think, you know, I hear a lot of stories about the talks that black parents give their children about police. I had one of those, I mean, sort of my brother. It's just a common thing that black families have done. White people are just now starting to learn about it. Um, and that like, wow, what if I had to teach my child that? And what would that make me feel like? How would I worry about my child if they, I remember I got, um, I had a, I had like a Volvo GT in high school. My dad gave it when he was on deployment in Panama. So it was a nice car and I had pulled over for no reason. Um, and it wasn't, I was 16. So I wasn't thinking racist cop, but I was just like, I pulled over. My dad was livid. He's like, what did the police officer say to you? Started asking me all this. I said, it's cool. It's cool. He's like, no, no, no. You remember his name, whatever. Did you get a ticket? And, I, and then we later had a conversation about why he was so, he was angry, but he was scared that like this cop could do something for me just driving a car. And yes, the cop asked me a bunch of questions about who's, who, whose car it was. And it was my dad's car, you know, like, <laughs> you know, and just stupid questions, which, as a 16-year-old, I thought my dad was over the top in his weirdness, but I, I now understand it better. Um, but just have empathy. Like, instead of bl blowing off what, what Black people have been telling you, um, to have some empathy. And also, what I've said to some of my friends who have Black friends, their friends don't talk to them about racism. I said, you know, your friend may have tried to talk to you about an experience they had. And if you don't listen, they're not going to talk to you about it anymore. Because we know how racism works. Doesn't mean we're going to stop being your friend, or it doesn't mean we're going to stop talking to you. It just means that when I'm having a hard time with the outer world as a black person, and I mention it to you, and you blow it off, or you don't listen, that tells me I don't need to have those conversations with you anymore. So allyship and listening, that's my, my long way around to that. I really, really do. I think part of the reason why I empathize so much with what's going on for the black community right now is because I've been trying to, you know, speak out as a woman about sexual assault in a pretty conservative community. And yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I've had 
you know, obviously it's completely different, um, but just the feeling, the feeling of being so vulnerable in a certain conversation and then being shut down or dismissed, mm -hmm. like you're not gonna, it's, it's just, oh, I know this is a place where I'm not safe to be vulnerable mm -hmm. and I'm never gonna mention it again. Right. Yeah. Like, I know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's part of the same isms that we, how our society operates with privileging one race over another race, one gender over another gender, one sex over another sex, ableism, you know, all of those things play into how our society operates. And until we start to work on these things, we're not gonna, we're not gonna get better. Okay, I do want to respect your time. Um, so let's wrap up. Rabbi Sandra, thank you so much for just being here, sharing, opening up, and showing us a little bit more of your soul and your heart. And it's just so beautiful. Thank, thank you. And I really hope we can have another conversation, you know, either just like over Zoom cocktails or whatever. Um. <laughs> Yalla, yalla. And if I ever get a chance to take students to Israel, which I was gonna, supposed to try to do this year, um, I hope I, we get to get to connect. That would be amazing. That yeah. would make my day. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. By the way. Yeah. Um, it was reaching out to you was uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was nerve wracking for me. But I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad I did. This is awesome. Thank you so much. I'm going to let you go. I'll talk to you later at some point. Bye. Bye. There you have it, Rabbi Sandra Lawson. Such an important message for all of us. And I really hope to continue that conversation because we actually had so much more to talk about. Um, okay, so if you have any questions or comments about that episode, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. The handle is Queen Rise Power or on Facebook, Queen Rise Power Training with Jackie Hyman. I love to hear from you. I love to hear your thoughts. I know this guest was a little different from previous guests that I've had, and I just think it's so interesting, such a colorful intersection of everything. And I just love to hear what you think and what your thoughts are and your responses. Love hearing from you guys. If you would like to learn more about Rabbi Sandra, you can go to www.rabbisandralawson, that's S-A-N-D-R-A-L-A-W-S-O-N.com. You can also connect with Rabbi Sandra on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search Rabbi Sandra. This episode was brought to you by Queen Rise Power Training. Delve deeper into your self-worth and your power with female-focused self-defense workshops for women and mother-daughter pairs. See you on the flip side. Queen sisters, feel good, feel strong. Feel strong.